2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You can be seated. What a, uh, what a glorious thing um, as we come to our study this morning, but in the, in the broader sense, as we come together this morning. What glorious truths we've sung, the prayers that have been prayed. I pray that your heart is full. I pray that you know the truth of what we've been singing and what we just sang. No one else can satisfy. No one else can be your shield. No one else can give you peace. Jesus Christ alone. So I pray that your heart this morning will be full of him, that his Holy Spirit will teach us, will draw us, and will sanctify us, and will grant us greater love and great watchfulness and great desire for holiness and for righteousness, and that we may learn lessons this morning from 2 Samuel 11, from, from the great King David, um, who was a man, as we see and as we will see. So as we, as we come here and as we enter into this study in this text, let's just pray with me one more time and let's pray and ask God to, to work these things in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that you have come to us and you have, you have done all that is needed. You have given us all we need for life and for godliness you have taken care of our greatest needs. Lord, we have this great sin burden. As David confessed and as we sang, Lord, we are brought forth in iniquity. We are conceived in sin. Lord, that is our lot. That is our fall, Lord, as human beings. But you are good and you are gracious. And in your holiness, you came and you paid the price for us. You took the sin and the punishment and the wrath of God and you bore it fully and completely and you satisfied the just demands of your holy nature. And you have not only forgiven us, but you have given us your righteousness and you have given us your Holy Spirit and you have given us your word and you have given us one another. Lord, I pray that you will work in our hearts, that you will renew us, that you will transform us by your spirit and by your word, doing the work that you alone can do. Father, and we are all coming here this morning, Lord, with, uh, I pray with this desire. I pray that we are, we are on the outlook, Lord, for, for you and for your presence 
and for your word now to speak to us and to minister to us. Lord, we have different circumstances, different scenarios. We are all uh, walking in, in different walks of life, perhaps. But I pray, Lord, that you will enlarge our hearts this morning, that we may see Christ, that you will, that you will teach us, and that you will glorify your name, and that you will be exalted and magnified among us. And as we come to your word now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last week, uh, Pastor Butch, in his sermon on uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3, he reminded us that as Christians, it is imperative, it is necessary that we maintain a biblical mindset regarding our exclusive reason for living. There is one overarching reason for living. We have different callings, we have different vocations, we have different families, we have different addresses. But as believers in Christ, we share one common reason for living. Namely, that we may honor God in everything we do. Literally everything. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Pastor Butch pulled out four uh, points from there. He said, we honor God in everything by not giving in to sin by not being controlled by our human passions, by focusing on obeying the will of God, and by no longer living as a lost person. And if you weren't here, uh, listen to it. All right, listen to that sermon and go back. But uh, this morning, I'd like to stir you up by, by reminder and to further exhort and encourage you in your overarching call to put sin to death, to live for Christ with all your heart, And consider this morning just how earnest the Word of God is about this topic and how universal it is for all Christians. These verses are not set aside in some special category for super spiritual believers or for older, more seasoned believers or for pastors or elders or ministers of the gospel. No, no. These exhortations are for every believer Every believer is saved and exists for this one pure and holy passion to know and to follow hard after God fervently and with great intentionality. First Corinthians 1031 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, do it all to the glory of God. Sit in traffic for the glory of God, right? How do you do that, right? Eating and drinking are just very natural, mundane things. And so is sitting in traffic, all right? But we're called to do all to the glory of God. So as you sit in traffic, pray for something. Pray for someone. Listen to a sermon. Sing a song of worship. Listen to a song of worship, all right? Pray for others who are cutting you off. All right, bless those who mistreat you, right? Um, Practice reciting your memory verses, right? Redeem that time. This is is what it means. We do not divide as Christians, as believers, the secular and the sacred, all right? We do all to the glory of God, all right? Do your math homework for the glory of God. God is the God of math, and math is a language, right, that just declares his glory, much like the heavens declare his glory. So does algebra. Okay? All right, Will, you like that. I knew you'd like that point. 
right. Um, listen, change diapers for the glory of God. What a calling. Children are a gift from the Lord. Right? They are a blessing. Right? And what a calling to be able to raise and to nurture children in the, in the admonition of the Lord. Right? Christ is at the center of that. Right? And, then, and then just, you know, just go with it. As you change the dirty diapers, be reminded of what God has done to your filthy heart on the cross and at the resurrection, and how he has cleansed you, and he has changed your heart, and he has made you clean, and he has washed you, right? So just, just discipline your mind to take thoughts captive and to make them obedient to Christ so that you are changing diapers, doing homework, eating dinner, cutting grass, working, playing, are you ready? Engaging in social media, all right, getting married, raising kids, literally train yourself and pray along these lines to do all to the glory of God, every single thing, because Jesus is Lord, right? And then that will lead and guide your decisions, right, and your time. This is how healthy Christians live. This is what drives every single moment, every thought, every desire, every decision, okay? Now, not perfectly. We fall and we fail. But if you're a believer and you've been redeemed by Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, this is what drives you. And in your failings, this is what brings you back, just like it does David. Okay? So there really is, there really is this all-encompassing lordship of Christ. And God is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. Everything is for Christ. Romans eleven thirty six 36 is very clear. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Paul said it like this. For me, to live is Christ. Just living is, is Christ. And to die is gain. That's Philippians 1. In Colossians 3, 4, just a few verses beyond our memory verse for this month. It says this. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, bearing these things in mind, consider afresh and anew Romans 12, 11, as we get ready to look at the life of David. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't you love that? There are a lot of verses about slothfulness, laziness, and idleness. But note what it's saying not to be lazy about. Where not to be slothful. Don't be slothful. It doesn't say in your work, okay, or just in your time. It says do not be slothful in zeal. Okay, so that's not easy. All right, so it's saying to feed and nurture Right? And, and line yourself up in such a way that you are not being slothful in your zeal for God. You don't want to slack on this point. You want to do the things, right? You want to, you want to set yourself up so that, so that this is working in your heart, so that you are literally doing this word. This word fervent literally means in the Greek to burn, to boil over. 
right? And so as you, as you go about, it's not enough, as you go about your daily business, it's not enough just not to be slothful in general, but don't be slothful in your burning love for Jesus. Don't be lazy on this. Don't neglect this. Don't forget this or become apathetic in this area. May your zeal and your fervency burn and boil over, okay? And it's, but it's not so easy, is it? Because we know God is all glorious. We know the greatness of the gospel, the grace of God. We know we're recipients of the everlasting love of God in Christ and that we have received every covenantal promise because all the promises in Christ are yes and amen. And yet our zeal fades and first love dies and fervency fizzles, doesn't it? We still dwell in a flesh that wages war with the spirit within us. So the scripture gives us many, many various and diverse exhortations such as this. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray. Be alert. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Back to 1 Peter 4, 1. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So watch and pray, arm yourselves. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And one more, Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can make your stand against the devil's scheme. So this isn't easy, living a godly life in Christ with this, with this perpetual and Christ-exalting fervency, fervency is not a passive deal. If you're on a spiritual cruise control, you're on dangerous footing. It's a slippery slope. And rightly did John Owen exhort us to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's not a middle ground. There's not a neutral stance. Be killing your sin, be mortifying your flesh, or it will be having its way with you. It will be killing with you. The account of David and Bathsheba I think vividly illustrates these lessons and these principles that are found throughout scripture. But before we look at David's fall, let's first consider David's, excuse me, first consider David's fervor because there is much to admire and to emulate, isn't there? I mean, I don't know about you. I I just love David. He's just, I guess in the scriptures, we know him from his youth and we watch him grow, and, and we just, we see his zeal and his passion, even as a boy, and we see his bravery in the name of the Lord to fight Goliath. We see him anointed king, and he's waiting patiently, right? And you just, you, you just, you, I, I don't know about you, I think you do, I do, just connect with David. Uh, just one of the saints that I just really particularly look forward to meeting in heaven, all right? And God himself, just consider, just consider some of his characteristics. All right? God himself in 1 Samuel 13 uh, referred to David as a man after his own heart. That's amazing. David was a man after God's heart. He was anointed king over Israel at a very young age, even though he was the youngest brother. And he refused to strike or harm King Saul. Even though he had been anointed, he would not touch King Saul. He trusted God. He trusted God's timing, and he would not, he would not um, take matters into his own hands. He would not strike against the king's current anointed, and he waited patiently for his time. In his youth, you know this story, he zealously struck down Goliath. Zeal consumed him. He was not slack in, in his spirit. He was fervent. 
His zeal was strong because he was consumed by it. Goliath had mocked and defied God and the people of God. And without any consideration, it did not matter how big Goliath was, how strong Goliath was, how skilled in battle Goliath was. David was not looking at those circumstances. He was focused on God and he was focused on the honor and the glory of God. And so he would have none of it. And then listen what it says. I love what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 48. David didn't just go. It says, and David ran quickly to the battle to meet him. That's what a zealous heart does. That's what a fervent spirit does. He ran quickly, right, to honor God, to obey God, and to face his enemies. So, uh, and then after that, he's promoted. And we see, we hear the songs of the maidens of the kingdom saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He was a mighty warrior, and he fought with the blessing of God. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And he leapt and he danced, even at the expense of perhaps his, his, how he looked as a king, right? His, his reputation. He leapt and danced and went before the Ark of the Covenant as it came into Jerusalem. And he desired for God's Ark to have a house, for God's presence to have a dwelling place. And he thought like this, I'm sitting here in this kingdom, in this palace, and the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And that just bothered David. He loved God. He was zealous for God uh, and for the glory of God. So he initiates plans, doesn't get to build it, but he initiates the plans all right, to build the temple as a dwelling place for God. And then just as we come closer to 2 Samuel 11, just consider 2 Samuel 9. If you don't know the story of Mephibosheth, you should read it this week, 2 Samuel 9. All right, but uh, obviously Saul had been uh, an enemy of David, had tried to kill him on multiple occasions. All right. Ancient customs would have allowed David. Matter of fact, there was probably some degree of, of political wisdom in killing off the, the opposing family line. So as kings take over, uh, in this case, as David took over, he had every right to banish or to excommunicate or even to, 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 uh, to, to put to death anyone left in Saul's line. But David doesn't see it like that. He doesn't see it in this worldly political way. He says, is there anyone left? in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan. So David has this covenant love. He wants to show kindness. He is exemplifying the gospel and grace. And Mephibosheth was dropped as a baby while they were fleeing. He was crippled. And David brought him to his kingdom. And Mephibosheth is fearful. He thinks he's going to die. But David not only doesn't put him to death, he, he basically adopts him as a son. He said, you will eat at my table all the days of your life. And I'm going to restore to you your land, right? And, and it's just a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? And that's David up till up through 2 Samuel 9. And then in 10, we see that God's giving him victory and peace is reigning in the kingdom, all right? The, the enemies from within the borders, right, are, are pretty much conquered and there's peace within the kingdom, okay? Not necessarily without, as we see as we come to 11. So with all that as a backdrop and a background, just now look at, have your Bibles open to first Sam, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's just work through this. And I pray that, uh, that God will encourage you and exhort you, all right? And he will grow us um, and we will learn lessons uh, because uh, Romans 15, 4 says, all the things that were written formerly were written for our instruction, 
So this is for your instruction. It's not just an, it's not just an historical account, right? This is for our instruction. So be instructed, all right? And let's learn from it this morning. So um, with all these daring exploits and all this great blessing and zeal, when you come to 2 Samuel 11 and you read this account, you just weep, you know, for David and for Bathsheba and for Uriah and for, for all these people involved. It's just a very low point, all right? Well, let's see, in light of Jesus's um, call for us to watch and pray, Let's just see if we can make connections and see how David's doing and what leads to this great fall of this man after God's own heart. Verse 1 in chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sends away Joab, his general, to do the fighting. And what does it say at the end of verse 1? But David remained at Jerusalem. I'm not judging that decision. It's not explicit why that happens. But in the context of what's coming, and based on all this we know about David, and I only shared bits and pieces of it, the context seems to be saying that, that it pointing to the fact that David has grown comfortable. All right, David, this is a time, it's pointing this out, when kings really go off to war, should be going out to war, leading their people, leading their army. But David remained at Jerusalem. Let's keep reading, okay? Um, it happened, this is verse 2, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch late in the afternoon. Can you picture it? All right. That uh, as he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So... It's not a knock against naps. Naps are great and can serve a purpose. Do all to the glory of God. And when you need that nap, brother or sister, right, there's a God, there are God-glorifying reasons for naps, right? And there's a time and a place for it. This, the context here just doesn't seem to be pointing to that, though, okay? David didn't come home from the battle and take a well-deserved nap, all right? He's, he's remaining at Jerusalem, all right? He's rising from his couch in the late afternoon, all right, it just seems that the comforts and the ease of peace within the borders and of his kingdom all right, has, has lulled him and made him a little bit drowsy. You just don't sense the same fervor that you sense when he was facing Goliath or being anointed as king or fighting his enemies. All right, so um, always be on guard because listen, idleness and spiritual drowsiness are great enemies. They wreak great havoc. They will lull you. They will make you apathetic. So beware of idleness and beware of spiritual drowsiness. And even if it's not explicit, that is certainly a point to take away from that. David is remaining at Jerusalem. He's not fulfilling his kingly duties. He's rising up late in the afternoon and it seems his life has become a little bit lazy, at ease and comfortable. So note what happens. He's made provision for the flesh. All right, so... Uh, Remember Proverbs 24, 33, and 34. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. That's a spiritual exhortation that was given in the view of the coming. Jesus is coming back. Don't be drowsy. 
Don't be sleepy. All right? Don't be like the disciples. All right? They weren't watching and praying. Nothing wrong with the disciples sleeping. All right? God gives to his beloved sleep. But on that night, after multiple warnings and exhortations from Jesus to watch and to pray, those, those disciples failed and they let their drowsiness take over and they weren't watching and praying. So little wonder that they ran and they fled and that Peter who had made the great boast to, Lord, I'll die with you if I have to. I won't leave you, right? But what's he doing that very night, perhaps just an hour, a few hours later, all right? He's, he's, he's denying that he ever knew Jesus, right? And he denies him three times. Right? They, they didn't watch and pray. They weren't alert. They weren't aware of the impending danger that was surrounding them. So we can learn from that. Be aware. It's around you, right? And it's within you, right? With the sinful flesh and a world and the schemes of the devil, be on guard, be alert, okay? Last one before uh, we move on. Amos 6.1 says, woe to those who were at ease in Zion. Well, David seems to be at ease and a great woe is certainly about to strike. So in verse two, we just saw he sees from the roof a woman bathing. She's very beautiful. And he inquired about the woman. And someone said to him, oh, uh, uh, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? All right. Three lessons to draw here, probably more that's not exhaustive, but three lessons I want to draw out. Listen, temptation and sin can be very sudden and spontaneous. He's, he's, he's rising up from his couch, he's walking on his balcony, and he sees a woman and immediately he is taken. He inquires about her. Who is that? All right, not just out of curiosity. We know from, as we read, we know what his intentions are. Okay, lust is set in, right? And so um, he immediately inquires about her and he contrives a plan to send for her to come to him. Listen, beloved, how often does a look or a word or, or a change in circumstance just completely alter the demeanor you had from moment to moment. In a moment, you have this focus and this, you're gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and then something just sets you off, right? Changes your, your mode or your mentality. Proverbs uh, 15.1 says, a harsh word stirs up anger. It can be a word, right? It can be that traffic, right? But it's not gonna be that traffic because you're redeeming that time in traffic for the Lord, Right? All right, but listen, but the point here is clear. All right, temptation and sin can, comes very quickly. It can come in a moment. It's quick, it's sudden, and it's spontaneous. Here's another lesson we see from this passage. Temptation clouds your better judgment. After he inquired about her, he was clearly told, this is, a, this is someone's daughter. This is the daughter of Eliam, worthy of respect, right? Uh, she's... She's not an object to fulfill your, your, your sexual gratifications. And David, not only is she someone's daughter, she's someone's wife. She has a husband. She's married. Uriah the Hittite, you know, your faithful, your faithful and noble soldier, right? She's, that should have ended the conversation. Oh, okay, she's married, all right? Uh, it didn't, did it? In spite of those words, his, his judgment's clouded. He, he's, he's burning with lust. He has seen her bathing. She's very beautiful and attractive, and, and he is going all in, okay? He's entering into the temptation that Jesus said, watch and pray to avoid. 
okay? So, um, but none of that matters to David. He has fallen into the trap that James describes in James chapter 1, 13 and 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is lured away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to death. That's happening. That's exactly what's happening. All right. This lust, this desire has come in. It's conceiving, it's taken some root. And now David, what does it say next? So he summons for her to come. David, she's married. He summons for her to come. All right, he's been lured away by his own evil desire. And unlike Joseph, just as a point of, just as a, just a point of juxtaposition, uh, unlike Joseph, when he was seduced by Potiphar's wife, David was not spiritually prepared. He was not being zealous and he did not put to death the deeds of the body or flee from sexual immorality. Sadly, he engages. He succumbs to the temptation and he sends for her. That's verse four, okay? And then also in verse four, so she comes to him and he lays with her. Uh, listen, one, uh, the third point to pull out here, no one is immune. If King David can fall and Peter and Sarah and Adam and Eve and Moses, and you fill in the blank of any old or new saint, right? Then certainly it is clear that we are not immune. We are not above sin. And I do not share that to discourage you. That's not the point. This, remember, this is written for our instruction. So I say this to exhort you and to warn you because I want to be ready and I want you to be ready. And I don't want you succumbing to sin and to temptation. I want you to watch and pray. So learn from this. Godly people fall and they fail and they get apathetic and they get spiritually drowsy and they get lazy. All right, so learn from it. We see something different in David and now we see with the loss of that zeal, now we see him going a different direction. Not burning for zeal for the Lord, but now he's burning for, with lust, right? And he's gone from showing in chapter 9 covenantal love to now he's showing covetous lust. He wants another man's wife, all right? So, so listen, so we're not immune. So just take that to heart and learn from it, okay? R learn and remember that you must remain vigilant, right? You must heed the exhortations of scriptures and the wisdom found therein, all right? Every day, every moment, all right, remember. So because, listen, a reputation that can take 20, 30 years to build can be destroyed in 20 minutes, right? In 20 or 30 minutes. It's just, it's just, we need to be warned. We need to be careful. We need to be vigilant. And as the story goes, Bathsheba um, is, becomes pregnant. She conceives. David sends word. Okay, so now he knows he's going to be exposed, this is going to have to be exposed because Uriah is out on the battlefield, Bathsheba's home. He calls for her, summons her, and now she's pregnant. So that's a problem for David. The consequences of his sin are about to become public. So he contrives a plan. And remember, sin clouds the judgment, all right? And, and so with that cloud of judgment, he's desperate now, and he's thinking about a way. No matter what the cost, he's thinking of a way to try to get himself out of this. Right? So David sends word to Joab to send Uriah to him. So Joab summons Uriah from the battlefront to go to David. 
And can you imagine you're, at, you're in battle with your brothers, you're fighting for the kingdom, and then Joab, your commander, comes to you and says, hey, I'm sending you back to Jerusalem. David wants to see you. It's like, this must have been surreal or just very strange. All right, so I have no idea what was going through his mind, but this is what happened. So David summons for him. Unfortunately for Uriah, it's part of an evil plot by David. He realizes his sin all right, has this consequence, the public knowledge that he'll be disgraced. So he connives a plan to cover it up, to cover his sin and his shame, much like the fig leaves in the Garden of Eden. Sound familiar? This is the effects of sin. And in verse eight, uh, after Uriah comes to him, we read in verse eight, David tells him, after he gets a report, hey, I'm just getting a report, how are things going on the battlefield? And then in verse eight, he says, go down to your house and wash your feet. Translated, hey, while you're here in Jerusalem, take a break, go home, rest, eat something, and have a nice evening with your wife. That's really what it's boiling down to, right? And so then uh, let's see what happens in verse 10. So now we're at verse 10 and 11. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Listen to Uriah's response. Uriah said to David, the, this will remind you of a younger David, won't it? The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. <laughs> Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? No, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, okay, remain here today also. And tomorrow I'll send you back. But his plan's not done. This is really a plan B in David's mind. Look what happens. Keep reading along with me. All right, so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. And he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. So David just kept on pouring in the wine. He kept telling the servants, give Uriah wine. Just, just feed him and fill him up with wine. And, and it does say um, it made him drunk. But listen, but even in his drunken state, he, he still committed. All right. And it says that in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord but he did not go down to his house, all right? So now it's about to get, it's already ugly. It's about to get uglier. And look at just the irony here, just the sad state. So he's gonna send Joab, he's gonna send Uriah back with a letter to Joab and Uriah's gonna be carrying a message from David. And you know what that message is? He's carrying his own death sentence, right? So he gives, he gives, he writes a message for Joab, he hands it to Uriah and says, deliver this to Joab. What does the message say? Well, let's look and read. It says uh, in verse 15, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. Man, another lesson. It's connected to the, cloud, the, the clouding, numbing effects of sin. But sin is also, it is also very hardening, isn't it? Sin has a way of just searing the conscience, right? And making us, making us hardened. We, we start crusting over, we get very cold and our conscience just, our conscience will just now do like what David's doing. He's just, he's so bent on getting out of this and protecting himself, right? His own selfish interest. That, look, think about what he just said. Put him in the front, draw back, let him get struck down and die. 
I mean, he, he, he explicitly states, he, he makes sure that Joab is, is understanding that he wants him dead. All right, well, guess what? That's what happened. But because of the way the battle went, Uriah didn't just die, other soldiers died. All right, and it was just, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even a wise battle plan to go to the hardest part of the, va- the, of, the, of the battle to send valiant men right up there to the wall, right? It was a terrible battle plan, right? And it destroyed other lives. We don't know their names. We don't know their families, but now other soldiers are killed as a part of this plot. Sin affects everything. There is not a vacuum, all right? Your sin in private has an effect on you and others around you, perhaps not to this, to this tangible extent, but listen, we have an obligation to one another. We have a responsibility of one another. And my zeal is intended to help rub off on your zeal, right? And my apathy can be a discouragement to you. And my sin can make others think, oh, well, he does that. Well, that's fine if we do that, right? Because sin has a clouding effect. It has a numbing effect, right? And it has a very hardening effect, all right? And so listen to Hebrews 3.13. Stay at uh, 2 Samuel 11, but listen to Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another, Every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to encourage one another. We need each other. And we need our time with one another to have an element of encouragement in it. Because sin is deceitful. And sin is hardening. And it's easy to self-justify and become numb, isn't it? I mean, you know this from experience. I know this from experience. It's just so easy to justify things. So easy to grow spiritually cold and drowsy, all right? That's why Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for, for the flesh to gratify its desires. Sin is deceitful, it's hardening. So don't make provision for it. Set your life up, set your disciplines up, set your time up so that you bring about as much protection as you can. All right, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get ready to come to a close. All right, so uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to work through the whole chapter this time. Lord willing, next time we can pick back up with the account. I'd love to, love to finish and get into Nathan's confrontation of David. Not time this morning. So just to summarize where this goes, all right, um, Uriah does get killed in battle. We said that. All right, David ends up, after a, a brief time of mourning, David does end up marrying Bathsheba. All right, David had thought he had covered his tracks. There's no repentance at this point. All right, he remained unfazed by his sin. But it says, but God knew. And God was very displeased with David. All right, and so as a result and as a consequence, the baby, that baby ends up dying of the sin. And God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. All right, again, we'll get more into the details of that in the future, Lord willing, or read it for yourself this week. But I want you to know, David is a man of faith. He is smitten to the heart. Sad that it took so long. It's sad that there's been so much wreckage and carnage, but David is smitten and David does repent. Okay. And even though he repents and Nathan declares to him, David, all right, uh, uh, your sins are forgiven. God has forgiven you of these sins. All right, you're not gonna die from them, but there will be consequences and great trouble comes to God's house. And that's another point, all right, that uh, sin has great consequences, all right? But before, before, we, uh, before we close though, I want you to just now turn to Psalm 51. 
And I want to make a connection and just bring us back to where we started. So this psalm was written, if you didn't know this, uh, know this. Psalm 51 was written after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah and his confrontation with Nathan. And in this psalm, David reveals some wonderful truths that bring us back full circle to where we started and to where I want us to close. David's sins were ultimately a heart issue that festered due to his lack of close communion with God in that season of his easy, comfortable life, all right? And a decline in spiritual fervor and the loss of joy in the Lord resulted. Look at verse eight in Psalm 51. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. There, David is confessing here, admitting, there's been a loss of joy and gladness in my life. This sin has eaten me up. And it's missing, and I need it. And so he prays, let me hear it, Lord. Let me hear your voice. Let me hear good news. Let me receive forgiveness and be cleansed of this and restored to me. And that goes to the next, uh, to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. It's, it's awfully, it's dirty, it's calloused, it's hardened. Lord, create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. My spirit was off. I lost focus. Right? And I got off track. So renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me. And by, by, uh, by implication, to restore something means you once had something that was lost. So he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And Lord, uphold me with the willing spirit. And the psalm goes on and on. And it's a great psalm to study. But I'm just pointing out right, that David recognizes, right, that these things are missing. There are hard issues, right? There are, there are zeal, there are issues of zeal and joy and fervency that have been lost. So he's praying for them to be restored, right? And Jesus said this, right, that it is out of the overflow of the heart that good and bad behaviors come forth. That's paraphrased from Luke 6, 45. Sin at its core is a heart issue. So, David once had God-centered joy and salvation. Now he's praying for its restoration. He also recognizes his desperate need for the upholding, enabling grace of God in his life. So here's our final lesson this morning. So just bear with me just literally a few more minutes, all right? Because this is, I think, where I really wanted to go and what's most burning and pressing in my heart. Close communion with God is the key to maintaining zealous joy to mortifying sin, and to resisting temptation, okay? Uh, I agree with an old quote from uh, Pastor John Piper. He says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. If you're going to fight sin, and if you're gonna be fervent in spirit and not be slothful, not be lazy in your zeal, then listen, it is abundantly clear that you, you have to abide in the presence of God. You need fellowship with him. You need communion with God. It is abundantly clear that in David's best moments, he had that. And it is abundantly clear that in his worst moments, it was missing. Okay, and so he longs for communion with God. Like a deer, read his Psalms, as a deer pants for water. And he's just simply loved to dwell in the presence of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty in the temple. 
The Psalms are teeming with examples of David's, of David's realization and his desire to have close communion with God. He was, according to God's own word, after all, a man after his own heart. So in your efforts and in your strivings this week and in all the days to come, eat and drink and do all to the glory of God. Put to death the deeds of the body. Be fervent in your spirit, not slothful in zeal. And remember that in all your strivings, that your ultimate goal is to know God, to walk with God, to have the joy of the Lord. All right? Um, the element of fellowship with Christ and of walking by the Spirit must be at the heart and center of all that you do. All right? So last verse this morning, and let's look at it together. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3.18. All right, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, lesson, point. True spiritual transformation comes as a, uh, comes as a direct result of beholding the glory of God. God's glory has a transformative effect on your mind and on your heart, on your whole being. So to the degree that you bask in God's presence, beholding his superior and unmatched glory, to that degree will you experience transformation and renewal and fervent zeal. And note that being transformed is, it's a present indicative passive voice. All right, that's important. And what I'm pointing out with that simply means that it, you're on the receiving end of this action. It doesn't say go and transform yourself. No, behold the glory of God and be transformed. God does it. This is, comes from the Lord who is the spirit. It happens to you. All right, so, you're, so your overarching goal is to behold him, is to gaze upon the glories of Christ Right? Romans 12, 2 says as much. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is God's work in your life. This is what you're striving for as a believer. So listen. So just a few practical, just a few practical exhortations for you before we pray and come to the table. Pursue Christ-exalting truth to fill your mind and your heart. Colossians 3:16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You have to intake the word. You, you hear it a lot. I say it a lot. It's, it's, it's like Christianese, right? To say, read the word, study the Bible. But no, listen, intake the word, read it, memorize it, recite it in traffic, meditate on it while you're changing diapers. Listen to Christ-centered, God-exalting sermons during the week and messages. Stay committed to corporate worship time. All right, stay diligent and committed to your family worship time and your personal devotion time. Talk about the word with others, right? That's also in Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ join you as you teach and admonish others. Let it come out. Just let it, just let it absorb and consume you and your conversations. Listen to songs, right, that, that exalt Christ, that draw you nearer to him. Let that be a part of your, your musical diet throughout the week right? Heading to work, doing dishes, all right? Just, it's, it's just an idea, but it's very important, all right? Let that aspect of your life also fill you.
and make the presence and the glories of Christ be dwelling in you richly. Okay? Read gospel-centered, Christ-exalting books. Listen, intake the word. Be creative, be intentional, be persistent. The point isn't to check off a spiritual duty checklist. The point isn't the studying or the reading of itself. The point is communion with God. The point is to gaze upon the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the goal. That's the point. And then God, by his Holy Spirit, uh, causes the transformation to happen. Okay? So in light of that, pray, pray, and keep on praying. Pray without ceasing. Open the word. It's simple, right? But I hope you hear my heart. That's my strong exhortation to you because I just, this connection is very real. Right, And we see it from the life of David, and I hope and pray that you see it in light of your own life. Right, So I pray that you have a renewed love and hunger for the word of Christ. May it dwell in you richly, and, and may you just find the transformative effects just building in you zeal, perhaps even restore joy and zeal that you haven't had for quite some time. All right, pray, read, read, pray, fellowship, and fill your lives in every way you can with the glories of Christ. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that you have given us just the reality of human sin. You've given this to us for our instruction, Lord, but you've also given us a way out. Lord, you have given us exhortations. You have given us your word and your spirit. And now, Lord, we come to another part of our corporate worship where we can just revel and just, and just experience and remember these particular glories of Christ that Christ laid down his life, that Jesus's body was broken for our sake and that, and that uh, the blood of Jesus was poured out for our forgiveness. And now as we come and share this meal together and partake of this supper, Lord, we remember what you have done, these glorious truths, Lord. And I pray that, that, we, will not be, that we will not be apathetic or slack, that we will not come in any kind of roteness or routineness, Lord, but that even now you will be filling our minds and our hearts with the glories of Jesus and what you have done for us and also in what you are doing in us and what you have in store for us. Because as we share this meal, we look forward to the fact that you are coming again and we will partake of this supper with you in person. We will drink of the cup of the Lord in heaven, in the kingdom of God where there'll be a great wedding banquet. There'll be a, the, the wedding supper of the lamb. So Father, in all these things, Lord, continue to work in our hearts. Point us to Jesus, Lord. And I pray that you would just, you would minister to every heart here gathered this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.